Um, welcome back to another Old Testament survey or a lesson in our survey of the Old Testament. Uh, today we'll be covering the books or the minor prophets Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. And again, as always, just to reiterate, the goal is for us to survey these books um, and just be better equipped overall at, by the end to, to read these books on our own. Um, maybe it, hopefully it'll spur you on to want to read these books and read these minor prophets. Um, and we'll see that they have a lot of uh, value as deeply ingrained into the history of Israel they are. They have a lot of value for us today. Um, so that is uh, our prayer. Um, and with that, actually, let me, let me ask for God's blessing before we begin. <clears throat> Father in heaven, you are the almighty. You are the God over history. You hold time in your hands. You are the alpha and the omega. And God, we, as sinful people, are, are privileged and we rejoice that we get to dive into your word. We rejoice that you have revealed yourself to us in your word um, purely through grace. Um, and we pray that this morning uh, we would see your work in the midst of these three books. Uh, we would see your faithfulness. We would see your might uh, in the midst of what seems like dire and, and tumultuous circumstances. Uh, we pray that you would give us comfort and assurance um, in the midst of what we are to study today. Help me to speak clearly uh, and help our listeners um, listen with eager hearts. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So we're just going to dive right into it. Um, we have three books to cover, so we'll try not to waste too much time. Our first book, like I had mentioned, is Nahum. Um, and if you haven't already, there, there are these little handouts by the sound booth back there that will help us uh, navigate our way through the lesson. Uh, so feel free to grab one of those. But Nahum will start off with um, the authorship and dating. Uh, so we have, of course, the author, Nahum. In the very first verse of this book, uh, it says that he is Nahum of Elkosh. Uh, no one really knows where Elkosh is. Um, it's it's probably in the region of Judah, but the significance of Elkosh isn't really all too important for our purposes and our study. Uh, but just know also that Nahum actually means comfort. So this prophet, his name means comfort. Um, but if you've read the book of Nahum, it can be a scary book. Uh, I'll just start with that. If you read through the book of Nahum, uh, you'll know quickly, even in this first verse, that it's uh, about Nineveh. Uh, it's about God's judgment and destruction ab upon the city of Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria. Um, and if you've ever read through Nahum, you'll see that this destruction that God pronounces on on uh, Nineveh is is incredible. It's it's pretty gruesome. It's pretty graphic, um, and so just hang on to knowing the fact that Nahum means comfort. We'll we'll get back to it uh, because it's important. Uh, we'll see that this destruction, in short, is is due to the Ninevites, to those who rebel and reject God and oppress His people. Um, but for those who are God's people. 
there is comfort within uh, the plot of this of this book. So going on, moving on to dating, um, this book was uh, the prophet Nahum received uh, or proclaimed these truths around in the middle of the seventh century. Uh, sometime in there, we get like a time marker in chapter three uh, when Nahum mentions the destruction of Thebes or Thebes uh, of Egypt. Um, so that was the capital of Egypt, which uh, Assyria in their conquest took over. Um, as you can imagine, Egypt was, was no small nation to conquer, but the Syrians eventually uh, conquered them and, and actually took control of Thebes in uh, 664 BC, and we see that alluded to in chapter 3. And so the main event of this whole book, like I had mentioned, is the destruction of Nineveh, um, which puts that historically to be dated around 612. That's when Nineveh fell. Um, historically, most people would agree that it happened in 612 BC. Um, and again, this is no small feat for Nineveh to take over, or for Assyria to, to conquest and control um, Thebes is no small feat, but for Assyria itself to be defeated, uh, its capital, namely Nineveh, that, that's a pretty amazing feat, because Nineveh was the powerhouse of the time. It was the powerhouse. Um, so with those time markers that we get from the text, we can actually kind of calculate that this book was written somewhere in between 652 BC, when Assyria descends into civil war. There's a lot of things going on with their kings, uh, and actually the Chaldeans, which later we know to be the Balbo uh, Babylonians, uh, come from within Assyria. So there's a lot of civil war starting in 652 BC. And then 626 BC is when um, the inner Chaldeans or Babylonians of Assyria really begin to rise up, and they, we know they follow Assyria as the next big power. So that's kind of the timing of our book. Um, and I do have a couple of preliminary matters, even as I was studying this book on my own. One of the first things that you'll notice in chapter one is uh, it's kind of hard to track who uh, Nahum is addressing. He kind of switches between uh, who his audience is, uh, and we'll address that later on too. But just know, for the most part of this book, the audience or the people who are to heed these words is Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. Very briefly in chapter 1, like uh, verses 12 and 13 and 15, you'll see Nahum uh, kind of almost abruptly pivot to Judah and address Judah. Um, in this sense, we'll, we'll kind of track that, we'll trace that sense of comfort and hope for God's people as he pivots and faces the people of Judah in his text. Uh, but for the most part, again, this is addressing Nineveh. And you'll see, again, there's a lot of destruction language. There's a lot of desolation that is mentioned. That is all addressed to Nineveh in this book. And then a second preliminary matter that I want to address really quickly is that you'll notice there's a lot of vivid imagery and illustrations that I already mentioned. Um, and this book is written in prose. You'll, if you look at your text, it's kind of written in a poetic format. Um, and this really helps to emphasize and intensify what Nahum is trying to communicate here. Um, we, as we progress through the chapters, only three chapters, but in the short span of three chapters, 
um, the intensity of God's judgment on Nineveh is really, it just gets cranked up uh, a lot with this imagery. Um, And there's a lot of mockery and imagery that helps us get a sense of God's wrath and uh, God's attitude towards the Ninevites. Um, A lot of it might seem repetitive, like the the imagery of destruction and, and things of that like, but Nahum hammers home the same ideas for a reason. Um, and we'll see it's kind of one of our themes, one of the main things to latch on to. It's that this destruction for uh, the Ninevites, for Assyria, is absolute. It's total. It's complete. There is no escaping it. So Nahum just hammers the same point over and over again. He comes at it from different angles, uses different imagery, uses different uh, forms of mockery and satire, all to hammer home this point that the Ninevites will be destroyed, and they're, period. There's no, no negotiating that. Um, which, is, which is funny, as we think about uh, what we learned last week uh, in Jonah. Um, who remembers what happened in Jonah? What, what was Jonah's mission, or what had God called Jonah to do to the people of Ninevite, or Nineveh? Yeah, preach repentance. He, God extends the invitation of repentance to the Ninevites through the prophet Jonah. Um, And it even ends on a note of pitying the Ninevites. Uh, The last verse of Jonah ends on that note. But here we see uh, Nahum, the events of Nahum, or the destruction of Nineveh, comes about 100 years, a century after the events of Jonah. And we see that uh, the Ninevites are very far gone. There's no more room for repentance. There's no more extension of that of that grace, um, it, is, it is destruction time. It is doom time for them. Uh, so keep those things in your mind as we read um, and as we study. Uh, but before I go into kind of the overview and some of our themes, does anyone have any questions so far? Uh, maybe some of the timing you had some questions on, or maybe the pivot from Jonah to Nahum was not very clear. Any questions or, or comments so far? I would say they, they're no longer willing. Um, I think it's pretty clear, as we, we, we'll see in the text, that in the 100 years, uh, their evil has just abounded. Um, God will mention several times it is, he won't men- mention very specific evils or instances, but as a whole, their evil is just too much. It's gone too far. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. They, they are just unwilling to at this point, and God does what he has promised to do. Any other questions? That was a good one. Any points of clarification? Yeah, Seth. I just want to add a little bit of historical context. The mm-hmm. Assyrians were notoriously brutal. Mm-hmm. Even, even for the time, when they, they would make carvings showing them, you know, like uh, dragging uh, prisoners of war with hooks and like pouring molten metal into the mountains. Uh, yeah. They captured kings, and uh, they, they were well known for their brutality. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That is uh, precisely, I mean, God doesn't, or this book doesn't, flush out all the intricacies, but basically what Seth said, they were a brutal people. They were evil. Um, we'll see later that the nations, when God destroys them, the nations will, won't will lift a finger to help them. They will be glad. They will not even feel sorry for them. They, they're down a dark road right here. So, yeah, thank you, Seth. That was, that was helpful. 
So let's uh, let's move on then to our to our overview of Nahum. And uh, Nahum, the main message really, you can boil it down to, uh, it's pretty straightforward that God will definitely judge and destroy the enemy Nineveh or Assyria. And in the midst of that, God will restore his people who are faithful and obedient to him. And that's what we can really boil down the whole story of Nineveh or Nahum as we kind of sift through the imagery, as we sift through all the language and the, the, yeah, the, the imagery that Nahum uses. We boil it down to God will definitely judge and destroy the enemy, which is Nineveh. And in the midst of that, the Lord will restore his people who are faithful and obedient to him. And uh, the points that I've laid out here, we have God's character and might, Nineveh's sinfulness, uh, total and certain destruction, restoration for God's people. Uh, They're not necessarily in chronological order, um, but these, I thought, were kind of like the major themes or major threads that we'll see in the book of Nahum um, that we can pick and see uh, repeated all over. Just because of the nature of Nahum, a lot of things are repeated, a lot of things are intensified as they go along, but the same things uh, can apply throughout. So we'll start first with uh, God's character and might uh, in the opening verses of Nahum. Can I get someone actually to read chapter 1, verse 2 to 7? Chapter 1, verse 2 to 7. Chenwei, thank you. The Lord is jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry, and he dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt. Earth heaves before him, earth, the world, and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Thank you. Yeah, a bit of a longer passage, but if we just read those uh, six verses you pretty much get a summary of what is going on in the book of Nahum. If you just tag on the fact that the Ninevites or Assyria are evil and their evil is abounding, you basically get the whole book of Nineveh right there. Um, this, this book starts off with a, a grand kind of display of God's character, uh, specifically his jealousy, uh, his, his wrath, his, uh, his avenging nature. Uh, his power, his might. You see his control over nature and power and dominion over nature. Some of the hallmarks of uh, surrounding countries uh, are are taken down by God. They wither. Um, mountains and hills quake and melt. It's all very vivid imagery of God's power. Um, and in light of God's power, then for the rest of the book, we largely see God's power at work towards Nineveh in judgment. So this book very very purposely positions us, reminds us as the readers who God is, what his disposition is towards sin and evil, uh, what magnitude his disposition is, and then we get into what happens to Nineveh. 
Um, it's a very, it's very daunting language, very scary language. Um, but right at the end of that, there's a little bit of a reminder to Judah in verse 7. It says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. So already we see that little note of comfort, assurance. If you take comfort in God, if you are one who knows the Lord, he will, he will shield you, he'll protect you, and he is for you. He knows you. Um, and, and that's important for us as readers, and I'm sure uh, as the people of Judah appreciate it as they get, as they receive this word from Nahum, it, if you find yourself reading this book and you, you're kind of, kind of in shock or you're a little bit trembling because of the language, uh, I think that's pretty natural because this, this language here is, is meant to provoke that kind of uh, response. But as people of God, as, as his chosen people, our trembling is not that of one that expects the coming judgment that God is describing. But of course, we tremble knowing that this God, this mighty God, is our God. Um, so keep that in mind as you're reading through Nahum. Um, he doesn't destroy indiscriminately. He knows who he's after. He knows the evil of those who are evil, and he knows his faithful ones. Um, and with that, we'll, we'll just slide on over to Nineveh's sinfulness. Uh, you might ask, what did they do? What did they do wrong? What did they do to deserve this? And we were already kind of touched on some of it. Seth mentioned their, their brutality uh, was pretty extreme. Uh, I had mentioned that they were the powerhouse of the time, and uh, they didn't do that through being nice. They didn't do that by playing nice and being courteous to other nations. Uh, they were out to destroy and humiliate and plunder and uh, absolutely decimate other countries and other nations and make them submit to their rule. Um, if I could have a reader for uh, chapter 1, verse 11, and chapter 1, verse 19, we'll see that point pretty clearly. Greg, thank you. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, 11 and 19. Oh, 14, sorry. I didn't want to add. <laughs> so verse 11, from you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Actually make that uh, 3 and 19, sorry. Okay, verse 3 and Zoom to chapter 3, verse 19, sorry. Oh, I got you. Okay, chapter 3, verse 19. The very last verse. Okay. Thank there you. is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. Mm. So here, thank you, Greg. Um, we see mention of Nahum's or Ninevites' evil. Uh, it's not entirely specific, uh, but if we even flip forward to Zephaniah. Uh, 2.15, and I'll read that for us because we'll get there later. Zephaniah 2.15. This is speaking of Nineveh, um, the exultant city. This is the exultant city that lived securely, that said in her heart, I am, and there is no one else. And then we'll, we'll read later what happens to them there. But uh, they are a proud people. The Ninevites, the Syrians, they are proud. They take pride in their might. Uh, we'll see later that they worship their own might. They worship their own power. 
Um, they themselves, they've exalted themselves to be gods, essentially. Um, yeah? About the relationship between these Ninevites and Judah. Are, is Nineveh in Judah, you said? Are, are these not Israelites? Yeah, no, Ninevites are not Israelites. They, they are Assyrians. Yeah, so they are uh, the capital of Assyria, the foreign nation that comes in, uh, takes over the northern kingdom of Israel, and then now they are they're waiting impending doom. But yeah, they not, they are not of God's people. They are they're outsiders. So they're occupying Judah. Yeah, but they're they're about they're about to kind of yeah. Yeah. Just the northern kingdom. Yeah. By by default, I guess kind of Babylon comes from Assyria, and Babylon is the one that will later uh, take over Judah, the southern kingdom. But yeah, that's an important distinction as we're reading this. They are not God's people, Ninevites. Um, so yeah, so they're committing evil against the Lord. Um, they reject the Lord. They, they lie and they slander and they plunder. And they commit evil against other nations. And they have this incredible pride in themselves. Um, and as we read at the end of Nahum... There will be no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. We, that's a very clear picture that the nations hate them. The nations will not support them. The nations are for their destruction. This is how hated and evil they are. They've made this, um, this reputation for themselves through their ruthlessness, through their brutality. Um, and that is exactly Nineveh's sinfulness. We might go into this book if you don't really know that context might wonder like what did what did they do to do wrong i thought we were extending pity and repentance and mercy to them back in jonah um, but it's pretty clear at this point after 100 years they probably rejected that that invitation they they probably turned back to their old ways they doubled down on their evil um, and that's why we're at this point where nahum is proclaiming destruction and judgment upon them and then uh, as we move on to our third kind of theme, this is probably the clearest theme that we'll see throughout the book of Nahum, and that's the total and certain destruction of Nineveh. And I'll go ahead and read some passages. We have uh, chapter 2, verse 6 through 9. And just, uh, just latch on to the imagery. Latch on to what's happening to uh, certain objects and certain things in this passage. Chapter 2, verse 6 through 9. The river gates are open. The palace melts away. Its mistress is stripped, and she is carried off. Her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. They are like a pool that the water just runs away. The water just, it can't hold any water. Slave girls are lamenting. It's a, it's a very scary image. And as we go to chapter 3, uh, we'll read from 5 to 7. Chapter 3, verse 5 to 7. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, you being the Ninevites, and will lift up your skirts over your face. And I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, 
wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Wasted is Nineveh. The great power, the great powerhouse of this time is wasted, and none will grieve for her, and there will be no comforters for her. Um, in a sense, this is exactly what the, the Ninevites, the Syrians, did to the other nations. They destroyed them, they plundered them, and not only just took their things and took their dignity, they put them on display to be shamed and to be looked upon with disgust by other nations as a, as a sign and as a spectacle of their might. Um, but this is what's going on, and this is what's going to happen to the Ninevites. It's a, it's a very it's a very depressing scene, if, if you will. And I think chapter 2, verse 13 summarizes it summarizes this notion the best. It says, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. So that that really just summarizes the, the utter destruction that we're going to, that is to be expected to be coming to the Ninevites. Um, and that's just throughout the book. We get different kinds of imagery. Uh, we'll see later a little bit of how Nahum mocks the Ninevites and uses certain language to, to amplify and to emphasize this point of total and certain destruction. Um, so, yeah, the, there's just there's just no escape for them. It's, uh, it's, pretty, it's pretty dire. Um, but on the flip side, it's not super prominent. It's not super... Um, present everywhere, but there's little snippets of restoration for God's people. If we look to chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, we'll see, thus says the Lord, uh, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more, and now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. And like I mentioned earlier, this portion of the text is actually directed to Judah, it seems a little abrupt, um, but he is addressing Judah here. God is talking to his people. He says later in uh, chapter 2, verse 2, For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel, for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. So here, just scattered throughout the text of destruction and desolation for the Ninevites, we get little glimpses, little pockets of the restoration that God is promising his people, his people who have been oppressed and afflicted, uh, will not stay that way. And this kind of, even in verse uh, 12 and 13 of chapter 1, there's a twofold effect. Not only does God burst their bonds and liberate them from Assyria uh, or from the, the forces that are oppressing them, uh, but God will also restore them to majesty, as we see in chapter 2. Um, so there's hope. There's hope for the people of Judah as they listen to what's going on to the Ninevites. But God still holds out this command to them in uh, chapter 1, verse 15. Essentially, he calls them to keep your covenant to God, or to myself, to God, and remain faithful in your worship. Um, God, is, God is still calling them to faithfulness. Don't let this destruction and desolation of the Ninevites uh, puff you up. Don't let it excuse you of having to worship me. Remember that you are also called to 
bow down to me and worship me and obey me. This is God's word to his people. Um, so that kind of concludes our themes for Nahum. Does anyone have any questions or need any clarification? Yeah. That's a good question. I, I don't really have a definite answer for that, I'll be honest. Um, I, yeah, it's either like they were, Nahum was speaking to Judah uh, to the effect of a concerning um, Nineveh, which is kind of where I landed. He's speaking to Judah concerning the Ninevites. Um, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure how the message reached Nineveh, um, if they heard it. Um, if, I mean, they could have heard it, words in their ears, but if they really took it to heart, that would be a totally different uh, issue that we'd be dealing with. But yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I'm not entirely sure, but I would say it's to Judah concerning Nineveh. That's where I would think, yeah. Anyone else? Any questions? Well, uh, we can kind of move on to this little application point. Why does, why does Nahum matter to us today? Um, if you read this book, it's very heavy, heavy on the historical context and the historical application here. Um, I mean, it's the, the larger part of the context is uh, directed towards Nineveh, concerning Nineveh. Um, but why does that matter to us today? Right? We, we don't really fear this the same desolation. We don't really have to... Uh, I don't think there's really any nations oppressing us to the extent that they are oppressing Judah and other surrounding countries. Um, so how does this how does this connect to us? Um, as with any other portion of the Old Testament, God's character uh, is pretty pretty full on display here, especially in the first couple verses of the book. Um, and I could summarize it as God being portrayed as the divine warrior, and we'll see uh, either mentions or allusions to the character of the divine warrior or God as a divine warrior, uh, God as a warrior king. Um, and we've probably seen that a lot in the prophets. Um, but I just want to parse out a little bit of what it means for God to be the divine warrior. And then hopefully we'll see uh, how that applies to us. So what, what are the characteristics of the divine warrior? Uh, well, first, it's, it's pretty simple. It can be summarized in two things. First, he destroys his evil enemies. And second, he saves and delivers his own people. So the divine warrior, this mighty king, this mighty uh, God, is pouring out his might and his wrath on his enemies who defy and who are evil against his holiness and his righteousness. Uh, while at the same time, this warrior is not only fighting the enemy, but fighting for his people. He saves and delivers his own people. And we see that with these mentions and these, uh, this attention towards Judah within this, own, within this book here. Um, but for us, how does the divine warrior apply to us? And it's that knowing that our God today has not stopped being the divine warrior. God was not just the divine warrior towards the Ninevites and for the people of Judah. But God who was the divine warrior back then in the 600s, in the in the 600 BC, in the seventh seventh uh, century BC, is the same divine warrior he is today. Uh, we see a fuller picture of the divine warrior, even as you kind of examine Jonah and Nahum together. There's this sense in which God extends mercy and grace 
Um, God is mentioned to be slow to anger in chapter 1 here in Nahum. Um, But when the time is up, he will bring judgment and salvation, judgment to his enemies and salvation to his people. Um, And it's really helpful if you kind of read Jonah and Nahum together. You get the sense in which God had displayed his mercy. God had extended that invitation of grace and repentance to the Ninevites and gave them a shot, gave them a hundred years, um, but their evil had exceeded um, the evil that they had before, and now God is bringing judgment on them. Um, And for us, we see this even in a fuller sense in Christ, who extends mercy to us uh, and who is promising to come back to judge the world and to bring us, his people, to his own presence. Um, That's kind of how the divine warrior plays out back then and for us, Um, and it's how we can we can make sense of and find benefit in this book of Nahum. Um, Does anyone have any questions about that there, the divine warrior? It's not explicitly mentioned as divine warrior, like that term is not coined in there, Um, but you get the sense that the God who is mighty is the divine warrior, the the one who fights. Christina. Uh, Connected to this day and age, we do have atrocities that have been happening Mm. against, you know, people groups and age groups, etc., for decades, yeah. centuries, etc., and I, you know, like, certainly we read the book of Jonah and see his hard heart against not wanting God's mercy for the Ninevites, and we also can see, like, in Psalms and preparatory prayers where, where David's calling down God and, and asking God for, to deal justly with those who are oppressing innocent victims and such, and, and so you almost see, like, this like Jonah's, like <clears throat> perfectly, imperfectly, not so perfectly, <laughs> you know, like um, you know, like saying, "God, we need justice." Mm-hmm. You know, it's like pour down your judgment against the evils, the atrocities, the oppression, the the torture, and and God delaying that justice, but fulfilling His justice and still in His good timing. And um, I think that that like should encourage us to remember that God does see the injustices that we cry out to Him about, yeah. and He will judge um, even and and he will redeem and you know like our hearts should be still for the mercy we I'm not suggesting that we'd be like Jonah and saying like, yeah. don't forget what you know it's like the repented but um, yeah. but like that, that um, we can have that confidence that he will do justly as yeah. he has to that's a that's a helpful and good word Christina yeah it's a, and to tag on to the very end of that as we think back to Nahum even meaning comfort that is our confidence that God will bring his word to fruition, whether it is judgment upon evil, whether it is salvation for his people, God's word will come to fruition. Um, so yeah, that, that's a very helpful. Thank you, Christina. Um, any other questions on Nahum before we get into Habakkuk? It's the last call for Nahum. All right, let's, uh, let's get into Habakkuk. Um, so the book of Habakkuk, or the prophet Habakkuk, it's, it's kind of unique among the minor prophets because we get to witness sort of real-time reaction to this point of, history, of Israel's history through the lens of the prophet Habakkuk. Uh, if you've ever read through Habakkuk, you'll see that there, the subheadings in your Bible probably say that he's complaining. He has complaints, and he has this dialogue with God Uh, which we'll actually kind of interact with. Um, But we get the sense that Habakkuk is grappling with trying to make sense of the grim and dire reality that he's living in, 
or expecting in light of who he knows God to be and what God reveals to him. So Habakkuk is a, is a faithful prophet to God. He knows God. He, know God. he knows God's character. He knows God's work. But he, he still grapples. He still wrestles with uh, the reality, the current state that he's living in, the pending destruction or the, the seemingly endless oppression of the enemy that he's uh, facing. He, uh, as you will see in the beginning of Habakkuk, uh, his, uh, his prophecy kind of happens um, alongside Zephaniah, uh, maybe Joel happens alongside Jeremiah, um, happens when the Babylonians are kind of rising to power. So these, these powers are pressing in, and uh, Habakkuk is wrestling with God, like, how, how can this be? I'm, God, I know that you're good, I know that you're mighty, um, but this is still going on. Help me to understand is kind of the attitude that Habakkuk has. Um, so yeah, so already we know that the author is Habakkuk. Uh, not much is really known about him. We get a little bit of a time marker in uh, chapter 1, verse 6, uh, when God says that I am raising up the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, uh, and that lands us in the late 7th century, early 6th century, uh, 625 to 604 B.C. Um, and again, this is kind of written in the same time as Jeremiah, Zephaniah, Nahum, maybe Joel, um, and Habakkuk is, is anticipating the nearing conquest of the, ba- the Babylonians over Judah. So this is all going on in the, in the background as Habakkuk is having this dialogue with God. And uh, as we get into this dialogue, I'll actually have two readers. Uh, we'll do a little role play. Someone will be Habakkuk, and someone will be God's response to Habakkuk. So can I get someone who is wanting to complain? Habakkuk. Maybe I shouldn't have put it like that. <laughs> All right, Josh can complain. Thank you, Josh. And then who will be uh, God's response to Habakkuk? Pastor Greg. Anyone want to get a response? No? I'm happy to do it. All right, Greg. Um, so we'll go uh, portion of text or portion of speech by portion of speech. So we'll start with Habakkuk 1, 2 to 4. This kind of summarizes Habakkuk's first complaint. So Josh, 1, 2 to 4. How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. Why do you make me see wickedness and cause me to look on trouble? Indeed, devastation and violence are before me, and there is strife and contention, and contention is lifted up. Therefore, the law is ignored, and justice never comes forth, for the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes forth perverted. And I'll, I'll cue you guys both to read when I need you to read. Um, but Habakkuk's first complaint, or his lament, there's no help, no salvation, God permits sin and evil, God's law is paralyzed, justice doesn't go forth, and even if it does, it is perverted. That is Habakkuk's assessment of the situation, and it, it's based off of what he's seeing in real time. In the latter half of chapter, or of latter half of verse 3, Habakkuk says, destruction and violence are before me strife and contention arise. It's a very valid and true observation of his current circumstance. He assesses the situation and sees that this is what's going on, and in his mind, he's lamenting to God, like, 
this is your character, God. This is the character, this is who you are that I know you are to be. But what is going on? Um, why is this the case? It seems like, and then he lists all those things, it seems like you idly look at wrong, you make me see iniquity, you will not save, you will not hear. He says these things based on his, circum- on his circumstances. And then I'll have Greg read um, Habakkuk 1, verse 5 to 6. What is God's response here? Verse 5 and 6. Look among the nations and see, wonder, and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Thank you. Verse 5, God replies with, I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Awesome. God is doing a work in response to Habakkuk's complaint. What is God's work? He's raising up the Chaldeans. That, if you were Habakkuk, that is not the response you want to hear. You hear, you complain of the destruction, of the violence before you, and God says, yeah, I'm doing a great work, something that you can't even comprehend. It's so incomprehensible that it's me raising up more enemies, more people, more bitter, more hasty, more evil, more destructive. So at this point, if you're Habakkuk, you're probably just, your, your mind's just swiveling. You're like, God, what's going on? You're, you say you're doing a great work, but you're raising up the Chaldeans. They're bitter, hasty. They seize dwellings, not their own. They're dreaded and fearsome. They're fierce, proud, and violent. They're guilty men whose own might is their God. In verse 11 is what it says. What is going on, God? And so we turn to Habakkuk's response to that. Um, Chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, Josh. My God, my Holy One, we will not die. You, O Lord, have placed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to reprove. Your eyes are too pure to see evil, and you cannot look on trouble. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Yeah, so here I actually want to see if we can together collectively parse out how exactly is Habakkuk struggling? How do we see his struggle in these two verses? What indicates that he's grappling with the situation with God's response here in verse 12 and 13? He's just God's response. <laughs> Anyone else? How do we see Habakkuk? Yeah, Matt. Uh, how the, the wicked are kind of flourishing while the righteous are not. Mm. And then there looks like there's some traitors involved here. Yeah. Yeah, so the wicked are still flourishing. The wicked swallow up the man more righteous than he. And what, does, what, what else is in Habakkuk's mind that he states here? It seems like he sees God not working according to his character hmm. that he sees. Exactly. sees God as having. Yeah, exactly. God, you are everlasting. You are the Holy One. We shall not die. You are the rock. And I can even accept and understand that you are ordaining them as judgment. 
Habakkuk accepts that God is the one who will raise the, Chal- the Chaldeans and use them. But still, I'm missing the, the connection, God. I'm, I'm not understanding how you being holy and shielding us and, and ordaining this, this work, how does that play into what's going on now? I still see destruction. I still see the wicked swallowing up the righteous. It seems like you're still idly looking upon the situation. And then we get God's response in chapter 2, verse 3 to 4. Appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it, it will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. And so God's response, God says, and God even mentions, make sure you write this down in verse 2 there. Write this. Write the vision, make it plain on the tablets. Make sure you write this down for others to read. This is my response. Wait and trust me. Wait and live by faith. And we, we even see a little bit of that in Habakkuk. Uh, in the very first verse of chapter 2, he, will, he says, I will stand, take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me, what I will answer concerning my complaint." Even there, Habakkuk seems to position himself in a way to receive God's response, trusting that God has heard and having confidence that God will answer. Certainly, I mean, this is a simple command from God to wait and trust him, to wait and live by faith, but it's not by no means an easy one for Habakkuk and for the others. Uh, It's almost distantly kind of uh, echoing what happens in Job. Uh, except that here, uh, the the people of Judah are very much not as as uh, righteous and, and sinless as Job. Um, you get a hint of that same dynamic, this kind of trying to understand God's character and his working, the way he's working, um, and being called to just trust and put your faith in God. It says there at the end of verse 4, but the righteous shall live by faith. Um, so we see this dialogue. It ends on God reassuring um, or God charging Habakkuk to live by faith, to trust in him, to wait for that day, wait for its appointed time, assuring him that it will not delay. Yeah, Randy. Uh, something I noticed in the discussion with Jonah versus this discussion, Jonah was chastised. Habakkuk is not being chastised. God's answering him honestly. And in both cases, the thought comes to me that God is saying in certain ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. Mm-hmm. But with Habakkuk, he's very, I don't want to say gentle, but direct. And he's not being chastised. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good word. Yeah, Habakkuk seems to have this, uh, this inner disposition towards God who's willing to hear excuse me, who's uh, already disposed and positioned in a way where he wants to live by faith. He's trying, he's struggling. It's a very real struggle, especially us as believers now. We, we know that struggle. Yeah. They're not your ways, but also my timeline is not your timeline, right? So these people are waiting for judgment and relief, and God just keeps more judgment. It just keeps getting worse. They're waiting for it to get better. It seems to be getting worse, so... Christina was saying, 
when you look around the world and we wonder when is it ever going to end because it just seems to keep getting worse. Yeah. But someday God, I mean, God has his own timeline for how he's going to deliver justice and actual relief. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, we see... We see that relief later on as uh, <coughs> Habakkuk will, will sing. He'll have a psalm of, of praise. Um, but yeah, you can kind of see and understand his logic as, we, as we've read. Um, Habakkuk says in there that these guys, these Chaldeans, these guys literally make sacrifices to their own nets as they gather us as, like fish. These guys worship their own tools and nets. And you're handing us over to them, God. But... God still calls him to faith, to obedience, to waiting on him. Um, we'll kind of speed along through the rest of the, the themes and the, the plot of Habakkuk. We see that God kind of doubles down and almost answers Habakkuk's complaint of idly standing by and not doing anything to the wicked. Uh, God pronounces woes on the Chaldeans. Uh, woes are kind of like a, a word or an emphasis of uh, misfortune, of anger, of indignation towards the Chaldeans here. Um, so there's five separate woes, all kind of based on what they've been doing. They plunder, they steal, they get evil gain, they build their homes on violence, they're wrathful and they humiliate their victims, uh, they're vain, uh, and they worship vain, silent, and worthless idols, is what God is pronouncing woes on for the Chaldeans. Um, so in a way, God is also still addressing what Habakkuk has already complained about. Habakkuk has mentioned these things, and in a way, God is responding to them, even with these woes, and later in this hymn, um, God's work is clearly on display as Habakkuk kind of uh, reflects upon who God is and what he's done. Uh, Habakkuk throws all the way back to Mount, per Mount Paran, uh, which is Mount Sinai, um, Habakkuk references the Midians from Judges 6 um, and Habakkuk is reassured that God is never watching idly. In verse 13 of chapter 3 um, it says that you went out for the salvation of your people for the salvation of your anointed you crushed the head of the house of the wicked laying him bare from thigh to neck. Um, so Habakkuk is reassured and he responds with faith with waiting and rejoicing, as we see at the end of Habakkuk. Um, we see in chapter 3, uh, verse 2, he says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In verse 16, Habakkuk says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who have, who have invaded us. Um, it's a little interesting there that he says he'll quietly wait as if he no longer has any more complaints. He will trust in what God has displayed to him. And then at the end of uh, chapter 3, yet I will rejoice, this is verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the, Lord, in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. He will rejoice in God. He will take joy in the God of his salvation. God is his strength. He can trust God to guide him and exalt him. This is the note that Habakkuk ends on. 
um, even though the situation is still dire, even though God has already mentioned that it'll probably get worse because the Chaldeans are coming. Um, this is Habakkuk's response to God here. Um, and in this book of Habakkuk, we get a lot of application out of it. It's kind of open-ended in the ways of how we uh, can apply and relate to this book. It's a very relatable minor prophet book. Um, there's a pattern of lament and prayer for us, uh, a reminder to live by faith. Um, it's a good reminder that God's response doesn't excuse faithful, faithlessness because he is himself faithful to continue to provide and be with his people. Having faith, even in the midst of more trials, is what he calls us to, uh, and we ought to trust his promises to save and restore, because he's done it before, as, uh, as we see Habakkuk proclaiming in chapter 3. Um, so any, that was a really quick run through Habakkuk. Any other, any thoughts or any questions on that? book, anything that I said that needs clarification, or even how you've seen this book work in your own life. I know uh, there are some verses in there that people memorize for their own benefit. <clears throat> Any questions or comments on Habakkuk? The timely message sure. of hope for yeah. everyday life. Yeah. Timely message of hope, yeah. Anyone else? If not, we're going to scurry along to Zephaniah. So we have the book of Zephaniah here. Um, we'll just get the author and dating out of the way. There's some preliminary issues about the dating, um, but we know for certain that this, uh, this book was written by Zephaniah. It mentions in verse 1 that he's of the line of Hezekiah, um, who is one of the better kings of Judah of the southern kingdom. Uh, so he most likely grew up witnessing the Assyrian oppression of the north and uh, the spiraling descent of the Judean kings. Uh, so he probably saw, if you remember King um, Manasseh, or Manasseh um, pretty bad king. Um, but now we're in the time of Josiah. Uh, if you know anything about Josiah, Josiah found the, the law of the Lord, and uh, he is the one in charge of reforming uh, the people of Judah. So knowing that this is in the reign of Josiah, we know that the timing is probably between 640 B.C. and 609 B.C., um, but we don't know exactly at what point of Josiah's reign this is. Is it before his reforms? Uh, because in verse 4 of chapter 1, there's mention of the remnant of Baal as if uh, worship of Baal, worship of idols such as Baal and false gods such as Baal has diminished, and so now there's just a remnant left. Um, or does do these events, does this prophecy come before the, the reform? There's no real clear indication that Judah has been reformed yet throughout this text, so we can't say that Josiah's reforms have been enacted yet. Um, whichever the case, none of these, uh, and then there's the issue of invaders, whether it's Assyria or Babylon. Um, you could argue that it's both because Babylon comes from Assyria, um, but these two issues don't affect our reading too much. We know that um, the people of Judah are still in sin, despite reform or not. Um, and we know that the coming people of either Babylon or Assyria is sure and definite, even as we know of Israel's history. 
Um, so as we move on to the overview, we know that Zephaniah is actually pretty similar to some of the major prophets in structure. So as we read through Zephaniah, uh, we get similar pronouncements, oracles of destruction. Uh, in this case, destruction upon Judah and the nations. And then similar, similar oracles of hope and salvation for both uh, Judah and the nations. So we follow those themes of more major prophets like Isaiah um, and Ezekiel. And we see that pattern. It's like a mini, mini minor prophet or mini major prophet here that we have in Zephaniah. Um, and the themes there, uh, as you read through your text here, the, the subtitles are actually pretty spot on. We have judgment on Judah. We have judgment on Judah's enemies. Uh, we have judgment on Jerusalem. So we get more finite. We get more specific. Jerusalem is the capital of Judah. So the judgment zeroes in on Jerusalem and the nation's um, and then we actually have some transformation of the nations and of Israel and ending with Israel's um, restoration. Um, but the main sin that God is calling to attention of Judah and specifically Jerusalem is comes out of, uh, or is mentioned in chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. If I could have a reader for chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. It's the main sin that we're dealing with of Judah. Matt, thank you. Her, he was rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Yeah. So we have Jerusalem, the, <coughs> the, the capital of Judah, a Jerusalem where the temple is the the dwelling place of God, and what does what does Zephaniah say of Jerusalem? Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice, she accepts no correction, she does not trust in the Lord, she does not draw near to her God. This is this is Jerusalem's sin against the Lord. The Lord who had chosen his people, who had put his dwelling amongst his people in Jerusalem, they have rejected him. They have turned to other gods. They have turned to other powers for help. Um, they are in utter uh, adultery. I, I characterize as spiritual adultery is what they are guilty of. Um, of course, the nations surrounding Jerusalem and Judah are guilty of similar things. They worship idols. They worship themselves. Um, they deal harshly and brutally with other nations, uh, Judah and, and Israel included. Um, but the, this is the sin that God is bringing judgment upon. Um, whenever we read oracles of judgment in the prophets, um, ask yourself, why, what did they do wrong? Right? If, if God is bringing judgment upon them without cause, without sin, then God would be unjust. But God brings judgment where it's due. Um, so ask yourself, whenever you come upon oracles of judgment, what is the sin? And usually uh, usually the prophet or God will, will talk about it, will mention why he is bringing judgment. He'll, he'll cite and he will condemn them with the specific sin. Um, but as we know, um, there's also oracles of transformation. Um, the nations themselves, if you look in chapter 3, verse 9 and 10, even the nations, the, the surrounding nations, 
uh, get this transformation. Their speech is changed to pure speech. Uh, one of the commentaries I read mentioned it's almost like a reverse babble, a little, little echo of reverse babble. Um, their speech is now returning to a pure speech, and they call in the name of the Lord, and not only call out to God and worship him, but they serve him with one accord, or shoulder to shoulder, as, as the translation would have it. Shoulder to shoulder with, with who? With God's people. So these nations who, who are sinful, who have probably oppressed Israel and oppressed Judah, uh, they have this opportunity to <coughs> turn to the Lord, call on his name, be transformed, and serve him shoulder to shoulder with the people of God. And that's, a, that's an incredible extension of mercy and grace um, to those people. Um, but of course, the transformation of Israel, uh, God still extend, <coughs> extends mercy, forgiveness to Israel in uh, chapter 3, verse 11. There's forgiveness and, of mercy, or forgiveness and mercy in, uh, chap- in verse 11. And then verse 12 and 13, um, God mentions how he'll cleanse his remnant. He will restore, take out all the haughty and proud people. He will make them a humble and lowly people who will seek his refuge or seek refuge in his name, uh, who will do no injustice, who will not lie or deceive. These people will care for, will be cared for by God and will trust in God. This is the remnant that God is uh, preserving. And if you're, uh, if you're someone or if you're a citizen of Judah at this point in history, um, especially during the reign of Josiah, you just saw some evil kings uh, just basically updo everything that Hezekiah did earlier. Um, you might be wondering, as a Judean, God, I thought you had promised your anointed one to come from the line of Judah. What is going on? Why are not only the nations oppressing us and gearing up to come get us, but the people within, the people that you have appointed as kings over us, they have turned to evil too. What is going on? Um, and God reassures them that he will not let this go, that God will actually restore them and cleanse them, cleanse them of any of the evil leaders that you'll see mentioned, any leaders who are still scheming and uh, partaking in the evil ways of their fathers, any priests who are um, defiling the worship of, his, of, uh, of God for his people. God promises to cleanse uh, the people and bring out his remnant. Um, yeah, so there's there's Israel's restoration, and there's a there's a call to rejoice and sing, and exult because of the Lord taking away judgment, clearing away enemies. In, in verse 15 of chapter three, um, and God promises to bring them in, gathering them, making them renowned, and praised among all the peoples of the earth. Uh, God mentions that he'll restore his presence in their midst. Um, but that is God's response to, uh, to his people, God's promise to them. Even though there's proclamation of judgment, uh, not only on the nations, but Judah, um, God, throughout this book, maintains that there is a remnant, there is a people, there's a select people that are faithful to me within Judah that I will preserve. I will not let them go the line of David will continue through them and that the anointed one, as we know, to be Christ, will prevail and will come out of it. Um, so similar to Nahum, even in the midst of destruction and desolation, this is, this is comfort. This is comfort to us 
for us, this is just, it just bolsters our faith, knowing that God who has done this continues to do this. Um, this is what it means to be God's people. This is what it means to be those he has chosen, those he has called to faith. Um, does anyone have any questions before I like move on? Because that was a lot. Um, we're going to address the topics of the day of the Lord and the remnant a little closely, more closely uh, in this coming section. But before I get into those, any thoughts, any reflections, any questions? <clears throat> no. All right, so we're going to hop into the themes. We have the day of the Lord and the remnant, God's remnant. Um, I intentionally didn't mention the day of the Lord at all as we kind of zoomed through the, the overview of um, Zephaniah. Uh, because this, I, I, I think this, this uh, concept deserves time for itself. Um, the day of the Lord, I, I kind of summarize as a day of establishing God's honor. And it's a day of destructive judgment on sin. So God establishes and maintains his honor uh, as who he is, who he said he's to be, or who he says he is. Um, and in light of that, there's destruction and judgment on sin and on evil. And we see that in uh, chapter 1, verse 7 through 18. Um, the day of the Lord, or the day, or the time, uh, it comes up all over Zephaniah. It's repeated over and over again. Uh, there's portions like chapter 1, verse 14 to 16, where the day is described. It's a day of wrath, distress, anguish, ruin, devastation, darkness, gloom, clouds of uh, clouds and thick darkness, trumpet blasting and battle cries. It can be a scary day, depending on who you are. Well, the day of the Lord, as again, is establishing God's honor and destruction on sin, but God's honor is also established through his promise to his people. So if you are not of, of God's people, it, it is a very scary day. It's uh, in Zephaniah makes sure to let it be known that this is a scary and gruesome and fearsome day. But for those who are of his remnant, we, we have hope. Um, and this, the day of the Lord, one other thing I would address is you might read this either here in Zephaniah or other places in scripture and wonder, when is the day? <laughs> what, what day is this? Um, and I think Zephaniah does a good job of pointing to the twofold approach we should take to this day. Um, throughout Zephaniah, it's very clear that this is a day where um, either the Chaldeans the, or the Babylonians or the Syrians will come upon Judah uh, as he is working through them and using them. So there's that day of uh, destruction, of conquest, of exile uh, that Zephaniah makes pretty clear. But even within that, we see that there's another approach to this day in which we understand it to be a greater day. Um, very uniquely, if we flip back to chapter 1, verse 3, um, I'll read a little bit of it. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked, and I'll cut off mankind from the face of the earth. And honestly, I hadn't noticed this until I, I read a commentary, which... I, I highly recommend as you study and read through, use the commentary to help you out. There, there seems to be a bit of creation language there. There's beasts, there's birds of the heavens, fish of the sea, 
Um, but God is pronouncing that he will sweep them all away. And as we know, um, as people of the new covenant, we, we await when God brings the new creation. Um, and so this, if you piece it all together, um, not only is Zephaniah pointing to imminent historical destruction, uh, that day of the Lord, and that glorification of God, um, but Zephaniah is also alluding to that grander day. Um, if, you are in, if you are a Judean in this time, you might take comfort in knowing that you're the remnant. Uh, you might go through exile. You might be someone on the end of exile that comes out as, um, as a Haggai and Zechariah call you out to rebuild the temple. But I imagine if you're on that end of post-exile, you see the, state, the sorry state of the temple that you have to rebuild. You see the state of your nation. And you're wondering, God, this isn't the restoration that you promised. This, this doesn't look nearly like the glory that you promised and that you spoke of. Um, and that's why the function of Zephaniah and other prophets pointing to a greater day um, fills in that gap. Um, as, those, as we'll see, because these, uh, these last three books are kind of the last three prophets before uh, they go into exile. We'll have uh, Malachi, or we'll have uh, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi following as our last uh, lesson in the survey, but those are post-exile. So you, you can't help but wonder, like, God, these are the last few prophets before your people go into exile. What are you doing? What are you saying to them before they go into exile? What are you preparing them for? Of course, you're letting them know that these people are going to come up and take, take them over, but what are you equipping them with as you lead them into this uh, exile? Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of the, the arc in which we see the day of the Lord that even bleeds into God's remnant. Uh, God's remnant is uh, not necessarily just a people that come from Judah. We see God brings other people into this fold with uh, the transformation of nations. Uh, he extends repentance or extends an invitation to repent to nations to bring them in. So this nation isn't just an ethnic nation, or this remnant isn't just an ethnic remnant, but uh, it's, it's, uh, it's more signified by a heart attitude, by a heart disposition. Uh, God extends his invitation for even the Philistines to repent in chapter 2. Um, so God looks to his remnant and identifies his remnant um, based on the inward disposition, disposition or the inward heart posture. Um, yeah, before, yeah, any closing thoughts? I, I have some closing thoughts, but I want to hear if anyone has any closing thoughts before I give mine. <laughs> any questions on Zephaniah at all? <clears throat> or any clarification on Day of the Lord, the remnants? Yeah. What's that timeline you were alluding to? Like, this is, be, this is before the exile? Yeah. But were there already, this is in way over in, well, yeah, so this is Judah, yeah. Um, and we know that because the very first verse uh, uh, tells us that Zephaniah uh, was prophesying in the days of Josiah, uh, king of Judah. So that helps us to see uh, where we are. Um, but as we know, after Josiah, there's no good kings left. After Josiah, it goes downhill pretty quick, although he tries to reform the people of Judah goes downhill, and then Nebuchadnezzar comes in uh, as Babylon and takes, takes the king over to his nation. Um, but yeah, these are kind of the last 
last moments. Not to say that there aren't any prof other profits, but uh, <coughs> as we examine these minor profits, we can kind of ask the question, what is, what is God doing here before exile? Yeah. So, but some of this, the day of the Lord, is it kind of going between Jesus' birth and then also at the very end, the, the, the um, new heaven and the new earth? Is it kind of going to go back and forth between those two separate comings of Jesus? That's a good question. Um, I mean, there are elements definitely where, um, like, we see God cleansing his remnant, and he makes them a people who are obedient to him, who don't lie, who, uh, I think that's in chapter 3, who don't deceive, um, who will look to God for help. Um, there's a sense in which when we view the day of the Lord, there, there are, like, layers to it. We see the, the imminent uh like historical impact that will be coming that day in the history. Uh, we see bits of it coming to fruition uh, more fully in Christ's coming and what uh, Jesus is doing on earth with, uh, with his remnant and with uh, other nations bringing them in and calling them to be transformed. Um, but of course we see the fullness of it, like the, the fullest picture of it in the second coming. Um, so it's like, Yes and no. They're, they're, you see them all together, layered upon each other. Um, yeah, I don't know if that answers the question, but it's, there's like layers to it as we look at the day of the Lord. Yeah. <clears throat> Anyone else? All right. I have gone past my time. My closing thoughts were just, I hope this spurs you on to study these. Study them slowly. Um, use help to study these. Uh, as I had mentioned, especially for these couple books, uh, think about what is God doing? What is God equipping them with? Uh, what is God equipping us with as we examine these three books? Um, they, they prepare us, part, prepare them and prepare us even as we're in the midst of suffering now, as we await, um, as we await the Lord coming back for us. So hopefully that was encouraging. Uh, let me pray to close out our time. Father in heaven, we are in, in awe, honestly. We are in awe of who you are and what you've done. Your ways are beyond our comprehending. Um, your ways are, are so mighty and, and so, so grand. Um, but God, we thank you and we, we, are, we stand amazed and we stand privileged and thankful that you have brought us into your fold. Lord, even now you use us uh, for your purposes um, as we await the coming of your son. Uh, God, we thank you for the comfort we have and the confidence we have in Christ. Uh, we thank you for what you've done in history. Uh, and we thank you for uh, giving us the spirit who helps us to wait for the coming day. Uh, and we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.